I'd done a lot of preparation for this Sunday's service before events took place um, in Westminster and obviously before the events on the Wirral last night. And yet somehow there seems to be a resonance. Our call to worship this morning is a prayer that comes from the Corrymeela community in Northern Ireland. God, our mother and father, we come to you as children. Be with us as we learn to see one another with new eyes, hear one another with new hearts, and treat one another in a new way. Our opening hymn of praise this morning, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And if you're able to and would like to, please stand as we sing. For our prayer of approach this morning, I found something that was written by the Reverend Catherine Hooper. I knew nothing about the Reverend Catherine Hooper until I'd found her prayer. And she was, as it turns out, one of the first women to be ordained as a priest within the Church of England. Sadly, Catherine's life was cut short in a road traffic accident. She and two other priests were travelling on their way to an event in the north of England uh, when their car was struck by a lorry. But this is a beautiful prayer 
and I hope that it will find a place, uh, help each of us to find a pl- our place in God this morning. Um, and after we have said that, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer. So let us pray. How can I tell of such love to me? You made me in your image and you hold me in the palm of your hands. Your cords of love, strong and fragile as silk, bind me and hold me. Rich cords to family and friends, music and laughter echoing in memories, light dancing on the water, hills rejoicing. Cords that found me hiding behind carefully built walls and led me out. Love that heard my heartbreak and despair and rescued me. Love that overcame my fears and doubts and released me. The questions and burdens I carry you take to leave my hands free, to hold yours and others free to follow your cords as they move and swirl in the breeze, free to be caught up in the dance of your love, finding myself in surrendering to you. How can I tell of such love? How can I give such love? I am here am I. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but
I wonder if anybody recognises either of these two books. Anybody? Oh, which one do you know, Sam? You knew that? Oh, I thought, you'd, I thought you did recognise them. Anybody recognise either of these books? You recognise them. Which one do you recognise? My? Well, you might have seen them, you might not. It's okay. Well, we're going to have a look at this one this morning that's called The Great Big Book of Families. And we'll just let the last family find their way in. That would be good. There. Just wait till they've got in. Oh, poor Esther. She knows it's going to be story time. So, this book is called The Great Big Book of Families. And they've got the first page up there so that even the grown-ups can see it. Once upon a time, most families in books looked like this. One daddy... One mummy, one little boy, one little girl, one dog, and one cat, and a beautiful house with a garden and trees, and the sun was always shining. But in real life, families come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. In this book are a lot of families living in different ways. Perhaps there's one that looks like yours. Lots of children live with their mummy and daddy, but lots of others live with just their daddy or just their mummy. Some live with their grandma and grandpa. Some children have two mummies or two daddies. And some are adopted or fostered. Some people have lots of brothers and sisters. Who's got brothers and sisters? And aunties and uncles? Who's got aunties and uncles? Yeah. And cousins? And grandmas and grandpas and even great-grandmas and great-grandpas. But some people have really small families. You can be a family with just two people, it says in this book. I think you can be a family with just one person and a goldfish or a cat or a dog. But this is a book about children, so I guess if it's a book about children, there'll be a child and a grown-up. People live in all sorts of homes. Some people live in big houses. Anybody live in a big house? No. Or a house? Some people live in a house? Some people live, some big families live in tiny flats. Who lives in a flat? Might not be a tiny one. And some people can't find anywhere to live. Most children go to school. Who goes to school? Most children. Some are taught at home. Who's been taught at home? You were, weren't you, Sam, yeah, for a, a, a while? And some just won't go to school. <laughs> <laughs> and others are too young to go to school. Few people, I think Esther's too young and David's too young and Bonnie's still just a bit too young, isn't she? In some families, everyone has a job. In others, only one person goes out to work. Some parents work for, from home and some can't get a job at all. Lots of different families. Look at that family where they're working at home and there's 
somebody trying to work on the computer and there's a child on its shoulders and there's a cat on the washing and a baby playing on the floor and somebody else wanting attention. It's a bit like that thing with the, um, the television interview the other week. <laughs> and the spoof version, which was even better. Some families go on exotic holidays and some stay close at home. Some visit their families in other countries and others go on day trips. Not all families can afford a holiday, but most people get some time off from work. Even a weekend at home can be a little holiday. They're having fun, aren't they? Playing in their garden or outside in the yard. Perhaps it looks like a yard, actually. They've got some water and they're just having fun playing at home. Some mums and dads are great cooks. Others prefer ready-made meals. Most families get their food from shops or markets, but some people grow their own. Does anybody grow their own veg? Oh, yes, Fergus grows his own veg. What do you grow, Fergus? Potatoes, wow, very good. All sorts of things, yeah, busy boy. Brilliant. What do you grow? Wow, tomatoes or tomatoes, squash, strawberries and blueberries. Yeah, wonderful. Probably haven't got time to do the whole book, so we'll have to skip it along a bit. But there's things about different clothes in different families. All families like to have celebrations. Different people have different hobbies in their family. Some families have cars, some people don't. Feelings, I'm going to pick up again at feelings. In some families, everyone shares their feelings. Other people are more shy, or perhaps they just like to keep their feelings to themselves. Sometimes, not everyone in the family feels the same way about things. And feelings can change quickly. You see what the children are doing there? They're fighting, aren't they? And the cat doesn't look very happy, does it? They're all squabbling. I wonder what they're squabbling about. Somebody's getting their hair pulled. Somebody's getting thumped. Somebody's shouting. Cats, Ooh, never, look happy. Cats never look happy. Oh, that may be true. And then, what about this one? What's that one? Happy. Happy? Do you think the cat doesn't look happy there? He looks happy. He looks happy there. So, yeah. But they don't in real life. Well, my cats look happy sometimes, but I know what you mean. They're not smiley like dogs are. So, yep, sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad, sometimes we fall out, sometimes we're all good friends. So, families can be big. Who's got a big family? Don't even, whatever we mean by big. Lots of people in it. Who's got a small family? Yeah, so, families can be big, small, happy, sad, rich, poor, loud, quiet, cross, good-tempered, worried, or happy-go-lucky. And most families are all of these things some of the time. I wonder what your family is like today. So thank you very much for listening to the story. It's a, it's a good book if you get a chance to look at it. And then there's, the other one's really more for tiny people. But it's, it's around the same sort of things. So we're going to sing a song now about families and reminds us um, a little bit that God gave us families. So that was my other picture that I didn't quite get to show you. Nice one from Stonewall about the different shapes of families that we might live in. 
And so let's sing together. Testament reading today is from John 11, a selection. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. <coughs> Jesus began to weep. Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here ends the reading.
Last week, our journey with Jesus through Lent took us for our first visit to the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke's story, we entered a tense situation where Martha, the head of the household, was running herself ragged with the preparations, whilst Mary was just sitting quite happily at the back of the gathered men, listening to what Jesus had to to say. Notwithstanding what I said last week about the temptation to busyness, I've always felt that my Martha got a pretty raw deal here. In fact, the first time I ever heard the story or consciously heard the story, I was expecting Jesus to say to Mary, yes, come along, help your sister, because that seems to me like what should have happened. And more recently, I encountered an idea that took that further which I'd never thought about, so I'm very grateful to the person who shared it with me, that actually it would have been even better had Jesus rolled up his sleeves and mucked in with the preparations, breaking down those gender stereotypes and modelling something more radical and more inclusive rather than just accepting the status quo. Jesus seems to have visited this home quite regularly So what if they'd all mucked in together in getting the meal ready and then they'd all been able to sit down to listen to him speak? But for all that, I find something quite reassuring about Luke's story because here is a non-perfect family. Everything isn't rosy. The siblings infuriate each other. They squabble, they fall out. Life isn't fair. And that seems to me to be like the life that I experience. I fall out with my siblings sometimes, or at least I don't fall out with them, I squabble with them. And life isn't always fair. And sometimes it does seem that some of us have to do all the practical stuff where others just swan around or, or whatever it may be. So there is something important that this is a real family, warts and all. This week, we're in a very different situation, and we meet a third member of the family, a brother called Lazarus. We don't know anything at all about Lazarus other than that Jesus knew him and loved him, that he became ill, and he died. And these few scant facts lead commentators to do all kinds of speculating about who Lazarus was. Because the gospel tells us that Jesus loved him, some people think, well, he must have been the beloved disciple, the one that leant against Jesus at the Last Supper, and therefore, in some people's view, the one who wrote the gospel. Others suggest he wasn't really Mary and Martha's brother. He was a brother in the way that we as a community would describe ourselves as sister and brothers in Christ. He was just their their brother in the faith, if you like. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. It seems to me, and most commentators seem to go with this, that the simplest reading is the most likely. That Lazarus was part of this family in Bethany, that Jesus knew well, and he would come and enjoy hospitality with them. Excuse me. At first sight, this may look like a healing story, and in some senses it is. But unlike the synoptic Gospels, where the healing stories are very straightforward, in John, 
we get complicated stories that weave together different things. There is the healing story, and woven into that is dialogues between Jesus and other people. And woven into that, again, are the reflective comments by the author. If you can remember the story of the man born blind in John 9, we get a similar kind of thing. It's a long story in which the man is healed. There are conversations between him and Jesus, between his parents and the authorities, and so on, and a lot of reflection. And in both of the stories in John's Gospel is a mention that this has something to do with God being glorified. Now, I could have chosen to comment on that, but I'm not going to. All I'm going to say is the idea of illness as a means of glorifying God is something that doesn't sit comfortably with me. It's something that is there in those two Gospel stories and I continue to wrestle with. Somebody said to me when I was diagnosed with a serious illness, this was being given you for a witness. I kind of felt like punching their lights out. I didn't. In Lazarus, we meet somebody who is clearly very ill. Presumably, his two sisters have cared for him the best they could. They may have paid for local physicians. And almost certainly, as devout women, they will have prayed. But rather than getting better, he gets worse so much so that it seems very likely he will die, and possibly as a last resort, they send a message to Jesus. Unbelievably, Jesus stays put for two more days. Meanwhile, Lazarus dies and is buried. Why did Jesus tarry? If he'd gone straight away to Bethany, would it make any difference? These are questions I've wrestled with since I was a child. I never quite understood why Jesus didn't go. And I never noticed until this week the significance of the number of days recorded in the story. It was only this week when I was looking at one of my commentaries that I realised that Jesus' delay, however much unwarranted, and however disturbing we find it, didn't lead to Lazarus dying. How so? Day one, the sisters send the message to Jesus and tell him, the one you love is ill. Days two and three, Jesus stays put and eventually sets off for Bethany on day four. When he arrives at Bethany, he's told, This is the fourth day since Lazarus died. Now, you probably already noticed that years ago, but I'd never noticed that before. In other words, Lazarus died the same day the message was sent and most probably was already dead when the message reached Jesus. So if he'd set off earlier, Lazarus would still have been dead when he got there. Doesn't explain the weight but does make a slight difference for me as I read the story. If that's the case, the comments made by Mary and Martha, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, might not be expressing disappointment or anger or Jesus for not coming sooner. Rather, maybe they're more like an if only. 
if only you'd already been here, this might not have happened. If only things had been different. These are really normal questions that people ask of themselves when bad things happen. What if I hadn't chosen to walk across Westminster Bridge that day? Or what if I had? What would have happened if this or that? We all do it. I think I certainly do. And I wonder if it's stretching credibility too far to see their response as both a what if, but also a recognition of the fact that Jesus on the earth was limited by his human physicality. They believed he could heal, but not always, and not everyone. In fact, with the notable exception of the Roman centurion's servant, the healings we have are all recorded when Jesus is present. If only you hadn't been so far away. If only you could have come sooner. It doesn't help us to understand why Jesus didn't come sooner. But I want to suggest that just maybe it's helpful for us. Way back in 2008, I did a charity walk along Offers Dyke to raise money for Macmillan Cancer Support in honour of a member of my church in Leicestershire who was terminally ill. On the last day of the walk, I received an early morning phone call to tell me that her illness had progressed unexpectedly rapidly and that she had been admitted to hospital in order to die. I was in a small town in North Wales, my car was in Warrington, that's 50, 60, 70 miles away. And no matter that my heart cried out to go to see her, there was nothing I could do. I did manage to contact another minister in Leicester and ask her to arrange for a hospital chaplain to visit. But I could only carry on my walk. And I also knew that I was due to preach in Warrington the next morning. And that if I left the moment the service ended, I still wouldn't get down to Leicestershire before mid-afternoon. If I was lucky, just in time for their service to start. The next morning, my phone rang equally early to tell me that this lady had died. So I went to church. I preached the sermon, which stays in my mind, because part, one of the texts I preached on was, let the dead bury their own bread dead, you preach the gospel. I kind of understand that in a way I would never have thought possible. But as soon as the service was over, I jumped in my car, I drove down for Leicestershire, arrived just in time for the service at three o'clock, expressed condolences, said a prayer, and left for the visiting minister to continue the service. Sometimes circumstances stop us doing what we would like to do, what our heart tells us we should do. Pre-existing commitments or the distance or the timing or even the money may mean that when news reaches us, we stay put. If nothing else, this story of Jesus not setting off immediately may just help to reduce our own sense of guilt or inadequacy when we are forced to delay 
when our desire might be otherwise. Jesus arriving on the fourth day is also significant, both practically and in its context theologically. Bodies were typically buried before sundown on the day of death, very often in caves with a stone being put across the entrance. Practically, four days after death, the corpse would be decaying. The perfumes and spices that had been put in would have stopped being effective and if you roll back the stone, the stench would come out and hit you. Theologically or spiritually, there was a belief that the soul of a dead person didn't finally depart the earth until the end of the third day. They would sort of keep coming back, just, just in case, if you like. But by the fourth day, a person was well and truly dead. The soul had gone and could not come back. And knowing that helps us to make a bit more sense of the conversation that Jesus has with Martha. The Bible records several incidents of people being raised from death. At least two of these, the son of the widow of Zarephath by Elijah and the son of the Shemanite woman by Elisha, read very much as resuscitation and nowadays are usually read as such. Others, the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter in the Gospels, and Dorcas and Eutychus in Acts, seem to have been raised very soon after death, in, in, in some cases literally immediately post-mortem. So quite possibly, they weren't actually clinically dead. I'm not saying that to dismiss any sense of the miraculous, it just seems quite a likely explanation. But also, even in our own time, very rarely somebody will be believed to have died and then they wake up. And it usually makes the news when it happens. And I gather it's even called Lazarus Syndrome. I didn't know that till I was researching this week. The Bible records resurrections of only two people who've been dead for any length of time, Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus rose on the third day after his death. So at four days dead, Lazarus could be described as being deader than Jesus because his spirit would have left the earth. In fact, of all the people raised to life, Lazarus is the deadest. Completely and utterly dead. Now, whether Lazarus woke from a deep coma or whether he was miraculously restored to life seems to me less important than the impact that that had for him and his sisters. Almost certainly, when he became ill, his sisters would expect him to make a good recovery and that life would just carry on as before. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, and probably in desperation, they sent a message to Jesus. But Lazarus still died the same day and was buried. So they're still in shock and grief when Jesus arrives and they go with him to the grave. They're not expecting what comes next. So suddenly, everything is turned upside down. The one who was dead is alive. The family is back together and life can go on. Actually, 
everything's changed. Lazarus has faced illness and even death and now finds not only is he alive and well, but he's the centre of attention. He's an object of curiosity among the neighbours and the authorities are out to kill him because people who have seen what has happened are putting their faith in Jesus. This wasn't what anybody wanted. This is a completely unimagined and unintended consequence of what had seemed just for a moment to be everything they had dreamed of. They'd hoped Lazarus would live, and here he was back, but it wasn't what they thought. Lots of people have traumatic, significant experiences in their life. I was preparing the first draft of this sermon the day that events happened in London, and in just 80-something seconds, the lives of people were changed forever. People who survive life-threatening illnesses or injuries, people involved in tragedies or natural disasters, indeed, most people who find their world turned upside down one way or another speak of a shift in their worldview. Life is now more precious, more fragile, less certain. Things they'd never thought about or questioned before are challenged. And no matter how much they would like things to go back to where they used to be, they can't. There are always unexpected consequences. And yes, some of them can be positive. Some of them can be really life-affirming. People discover liberation from past constraints. They just say, well, do you know what? I'm going to live life to the full now. But others can be equally challenging and distressing with long-term impact on relationships, on health or well-being. Maybe the story of Lazarus allows us to recognise and name the impact on our own lives of unexpected major events and to be a little bit kinder to ourselves as we negotiate the long-term changes they bring for us. Just like the other stories we've looked at, I've tried to ponder this one in the light of Lenten themes and I have not found that easy. When I reflected on this story this week, one thought that just kept coming back into my head was, be careful what you wish for. I'm pretty sure that Lazarus wanted to get well. But I'm also sure he didn't want to be the centre of attention and certainly didn't want people out to kill him. And he certainly, surely didn't want to be a prop to enable Jesus to reveal God's glory. I don't think his sisters wanted that either. But the lure of an imagined happy ending was strong. If only Lazarus got better, all would be well. And now he was restored. And their dream had come true. Or had it. So am I saying we shouldn't dream or plan? No, I'm not. Hopes and dreams are really important in motivating us to live life fully. 
but I'm trying to express a, a note of caution that I, I kind of struggle to put into words. There is something about the temptation of a fairy tale ending that, that, that leads us to think that if this one thing we long for happens, whatever it is, all will be well, or life will go back to how we like to think it used to be because we sort of forget this reality. Of course, it's never going to happen. Even in the best case scenarios, there will still be disappointments. Things will still go wrong. We'll still squabble and argue with those that we love. Life kind of carries on in its normality. It won't all be roses all the time. But there is also something about the temptation to deny or to hide the impact of major life events. Pretending to ourselves or to others that nothing much has changed. When actually, it probably has. The smiling Christian who weeps inwardly because she dare not speak her truth. Or the stoic Christian who says he's fine, thank you, when actually his heart is breaking. However we read the story and whether or not my reflections resonate with anybody else's experience, this story where Jesus tarries, where questions are asked and unintended consequences arise from what appears at first sight to be a wonderful outcome, can help us to look at ourselves and each other a little bit more kindly, realising that actually... It's a story of people pretty much like us. I think we'll remain seated as we sing this next hymn. And sure, when what was bright turns dark and life, it seems, has lost its way.
Our prayer for today is following on from last Sunday's away day. Let us pray. The Israelite prophet Micah said, What does the Lord require of you? Only to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God of mercy and source of justice, pour on your people such love and compassion that we cannot remain silent. We cannot tolerate injustice and poverty as your grace fills our hearts so we may be stirred into action to demonstrate your love for all the world and for all creatures that live and move on this earth. We pray for those who have no peace, for those who are troubled and torn apart by lack of self-esteem, for those who torment and victimize the vulnerable. May they learn of your love and somehow come to newness of life, even in the midst of despair. Lord, may Lent be a time of inward searching that makes us more able to look with compassion on the needs of the world. May we continue in this new place of worship to look out for each other with love and care. Amen. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and who is merciful to us, accept these our gifts of money and accept with them our very selves that all are employed in the extension of your love, your grace, your mercy and your forgiveness in this place and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Look forward in faith. All time is in God's hands. Walk humbly with him and trust his future plan.
blessing today comes from the church in India. The blessing of the God of Sarah and Abraham. The blessing of the Son of Mary. The blessing of the Holy Spirit who broods over us as a mother over her children. Be with us all evermore. <laughs>